Chapter Four of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. The sky was clear and bright. The moonlight was sleeping in dreamlike splendor upon the water, and the small waves, thrown up by the tide more than the wind, came rippling along the beach like a flood of diamonds. All was still and silent in the sky and upon the earth, and the soft rustle of the waters upon the shore seemed but to say, Hush! as if nature feared that any louder sound should interrupt her calm repose. To the west stretched out the faint low line of coast towards Dungeness, and to the east appeared the high cliffs near Folkestone and Dover, grey and solemn, while the open heaven above looked down with its tiny stars and lustrous moon upon the wide extended sea, glittering in the silver veil cast over her sleeping bosom from on high. Such was the scene presented to the eyes of the two wanderers when they reached the beach, a little way on the Sandgate side of Hythe, and both paused to gaze upon it for several minutes in profound silence. "'This is indeed a night to walk forth upon the sands,' said the young officer at length. "'It seems to me that of all the many scenes from which man can derive both instruction and comfort in the difficulties and troubles of life,' There is none so elevating, so strengthening, as that presented by the seashore on a moonlight night. To behold that mighty element, so full of destructive and of beneficial power, lying tranquilly within the bound which God affixed to it, and to remember the words, Thus far shalt thou come, and no farther, and here shall thy proud waves be stopped, afford so grand an illustration of his might, so fine a proof of the truth of his promises, that the heart must be hard indeed, and the mind dull, not to receive confirmation of faith and encouragement in hope. More, far more, may man receive, replied his companion, if he be but willing, but that gross and corrupt insect refuses all instruction, and though the whole universe holds out blessings, still chooses the curse. Where is there a scene whence man may not receive benefit, what spot upon the whole earth has not something to speak to his heart, if he would but listen? In his own busy passions, however, and in his own fierce contentions, in his sordid creeping after gain, in his trickery and his knavery, even in his loves and pleasures, man turns a deaf ear to the great voice speaking to him, and the only scene of all this earth which cannot benefit the eye that looks upon it is that in which human beings are the chief actors. There all is foulness or pitifulness or vice, and one to live in happiness and to take the moral of all nature to his heart should live alone with nature. I will find me out such a place where I can absent myself entirely and contemplate naught but the works of God without the presence of man, for I am sick to death of all that I have seen of him and his, especially in what is called a civilised state. "'You have often threatened to do so, Ward,' answered the young officer, "'but yet methinks, though you rail at him, "'you love man too much to quit his abodes entirely. "'I have seen you kind and considerate to savages of the most horrible class, "'to men whose daily practice it is to torture with the most unheard-of cruelty "'the prisoners whom they take in battle. "'And will you have less regard for other fellow-creatures "'because they are what you call civilized the savage is at least sincere replied his companion 
The want of sincerity is the great and crowning vice of all this portion of the globe. Cruel the wild hunters may be, but are they more cruel than the people here? Which is the worst torment, a few hours' agony at the stake, singing the war song, all ended by a blow of the hatchet, or long years of mental torture, when every scorn and contumely, every bitter injustice, every cruel bereavement that man can inflict or suffer, is piled upon your head, till the load becomes intolerable. Then, too, it is done in a smooth and smiling guise. The civilised fiend looks softly upon you while he wounds you to the heart, makes a pretext of law and justice and equity, would have you fancy him a soft good man, while there is no act of malevolence and iniquity that he does not practice. The savage is true at all events. The man who fractured my skull with a blow of his tomahawk made no pretence of friendship or of right. He did it boldly, as an act customary with his people, and would have led me to the stake and danced with joy to see me suffering, had I not been rescued. He was sincere at least, but how would the Englishman have served me? He would have wrung my heart with pangs insupportable, and all the time have talked of his great grief to afflict me, of the necessity of the case, of justice being on his side, and of a thousand other vain and idle pretexts, but aggravating the act by mocking me with a show of generosity. I fear, my excellent friend, that you have at some time suffered sadly from man's baseness, said Osborne, but yet I think you are wrong to let the memory thereof affect you thus. I, too, have suffered, and perhaps shall have to suffer more, but yet I would not part with the best blessings God has given to man, as you have done, for any other good. What have I parted with that I could keep? asked the other sharply. What blessings? I know of none. Trust, confidence, replied his young companion, I know you will say that they have been taken from you, that you have not thrown them away, that you have been robbed of them. But have you not parted with them too easily? Have you not yielded at once without a struggle to retain what I still call the best blessings of God? There are many villains in the world, I know it but too well. There are many knaves. There are still more cold and selfish egotists who, without committing actual crimes or injuring others, do good to none. But there are also many true and upright hearts, many just, noble and generous men, and were it a delusion to think so, I would try to retain it still. And suffer for it in the hour of need, in the moment of the deepest confidence, answered Ward. If you must have confidence, place it in the humble and the low, in the rudest and least civilised, aye, in the very outcasts of society, rather than in the polished and the courtly, the great and the high. I would rather trust my life or my purse to the honour of the common robber and to his generosity than to the very gentlemanly man of fashion and high station. Now, if, as you say, you have not come down hither for old associations, you must be sent to hunt down honester men than those who sent you, men who break boldly through an unjust and barbarous system which denies to our land the goods of another, and who, knowing that the very knaves who devised that system, did it but to enrich themselves, stop with a strong hand a part of the plunder on the way, or rather, insist at the peril of their lives on man's inherent right to trade with his neighbours, and frustrate the roguish devices of those who would forbid to our land the use of that produced by another. 
Osborne smiled at his companion's defence of smuggling, but replied, "'I can conceive a thousand reasons, my good friend, why the trade in certain things should be totally prohibited, and a high duty for the interests of the state be placed on others.' but I am not going to argue with you on all our institutions. Merely this I will say, that when we entrust to certain men the power of making laws, we are bound to obey those laws when they are made, and if it were but candid and just to suppose that those who have made them, after long deliberation, did so for the general good of the whole. For their own villainous ends, answered Ward, for their own selfish interests, the good of the whole what is it in the eyes of any of these lawgivers but the good of a party? But do you not think, asked the young officer, that we ourselves, who are not lawgivers, judge their actions but too often under the influence of the very motives we attribute to them? Has party no share in our bosoms? Has selfishness have views of our own interests in opposition either to the interests of others or the general weal? no part in the judgment that we form each man carps at that which suits him not and strives to change it without the slightest care whether in so doing he be not bringing ruin on the heads of thousands but as to what you said just now of my being sent hither to hunt down the smuggler such is not the case i am sent to lend my aid to the civil power when called upon to do so but nothing more and we all know that the civil power has proved quite ineffective in stopping a system which began by violation of a fiscal law, and has gone on to outrages the most brutal and the most daring. I shall not step beyond the line of my duty, my good friend, and I will admit that many of these very misguided men themselves, who are carrying on an illegal traffic in this daring manner, fancy themselves justified by such arguments as you have just now used, Nay, more, I do believe that there are some men amongst them of high and noble feelings who never dream that they are dishonest in breaking a law that they dislike. But if we break one law thus, why should we keep any? Why not add robbery and murder if it suits us? Aye, there are high-minded and noble men amongst them, answered Ward, not seeming to heed the latter part of what his companion said. And there stands one of them. He has evil in him, doubtless, for he is a man and an Englishman, but I have found none here who has less and many who have more. Yet, were that man taken in pursuing his occupation, they would imprison, exile, perhaps hang him, while a multitude of knaves in gilded coats would be suffered to go on committing every sin and almost every crime unpunished, a good man, an excellent man, and yet a smuggler. The young officer knew it was in vain to reason with him, for in the frequent intercourse they held together he had perceived that, with many generous and noble feelings, with a pure heart and almost ascetic severity of life, there was a certain perversity in the course of Mr. Ward's thoughts which rendered it impossible to turn them from the direction which they naturally took. It seemed as if by long habit they had channelled for themselves so deep a bed that they could never be diverted thence, and consequently, without replying at first, he merely turned his eyes in the direction which the other pointed out, trying to catch sight of the person of whom he spoke. They were now on the low sandy shore which runs along between the town of Hive and the beautiful little watering-place of Sandgate. 
but it must be recollected that at the time I speak of, the latter place displayed no ornamental villas, no gardens full of flowers, almost touching on the sea, and consisted merely of a few fishermen's, or rather smugglers, huts, with one little public house and a low-browed shop, filled with all the necessities that the inhabitants might require. Thus nothing like the mass of buildings which the watering-place can now boast lay between them and the Folkestone cliffs, and the whole line of the coast except at one point, where the roof of a house intercepted the view, was open before Osborne's eyes. Yet neither upon the shore itself, nor upon the green upland which was broken by rocks and bushes, and covered by thick dry grass, could he perceive anything resembling a human form. A minute after, however, he thought he saw something move against the rugged background, and the next moment the head and shoulders of a man rising over the edge of the hill caught his eyes. And as his companion walked forward in silence, he inquired, "'Have you known him long, or is this one of your sudden judgments, my good friend?' "'I knew him when he was a boy and a lad,' answered Wilmot. "'I know him now that he is a man.' "'So it is no sudden judgment. "'Come, let us speak with him, Osborne.' "'And he advanced rapidly by a narrow path up the side of the slope. "'Osborne paused a single instant and then followed, saying, "'Be upon your guard, Ward, and remember how I am circumstanced. "'Neither commit me, nor let him commit himself.' "'No, no, fear not,' answered his friends. "'I am no smuggler, young man.' "'And he strode on before, without pausing for further consultation.' As they climbed the hill, the figure of the man of whom they had been speaking became more and more distinct, while walking up and down upon a flat space at the top of the first step or wave of ground. He seemed to take no notice of their approach. When they came nearer still, he paused, as if waiting for their coming, and the moon shining full upon him displayed his powerful form, standing in an attitude of easy grace, with the arms folded on the chest, and the head slightly bent forward. He was not above the middle height, but broad in the shoulders and long in the arms, robust and strong, every muscle was round and swelling, and yet not heavy, for there was the appearance of great lightness and activity in his whole figure, strangely combined with that of vigour and power. His head was small and well set up upon his shoulders, and the very position in which he stood, the firm planting of his feet on the ground, the motionless crossing of his arm upon his breast, all seemed to argue to the mind of Osborne, and he was not one unaccustomed to judge of character by external signs, a strong and determined spirit, well fitted for the rough and adventurous life which he had undertaken. "'Good night, Harding,' said Mr. Ward, as they came up to the spot where he stood. "'What a beautiful evening it is!' "'Good night, sir,' answered the man in a civil tone, and with a voice of considerable melody. It is indeed a beautiful evening, though sometimes I like to see the cloudy sky, too. And yet I dare say you enjoy a walk by the bright sea in the calm moonlight as much as I do, rejoined Mr. Ward. Aye, that I do, sir, replied the smuggler. That's what brought me out to-night, for there's nothing else doing. But I should not rest quiet, I suppose, in my bed, if I did not take my stroll along the downs or somewhere and look over the sea while she lies panting in the moonbeams. She's a pretty creature, and I love her dearly. I wonder how people can live inland. Oh, there are beautiful scenes enough inland, said Osborne, joining in the conversation. 
both wild and grand, and calm and peaceful. "'I know there are, sir, I know there are,' answered the smuggler, gazing at him attentively, "'and if ever I were to live away from the beach, I should say, give me the wild and grand, for I have seen many a beautiful place in land, especially in Wales, but still it always seems to me as if there was something wanting when the sea is not there. I suppose it is natural for an Englishman.' "'Perhaps it is,' rejoined Osborne, "'for certainly when nature rolled the ocean round us "'she intended us for a maritime people. "'But to return to what you were saying, "'if I could choose my own abode, "'it should be amongst the calm and peaceful scenes "'of which the eye never tires, "'and amongst which the mind rests in repose.' "'Aye, if it's his repose one is seeking,' "'replied the smuggler with a laugh, "'well and good.' then a pleasant little valley with trees and a running stream in a neat little church, and the parsonage may do well enough. But I dare say you and I, sir, have led very different lives, and so have got different likings. I have always been accustomed to the storm and the gale, to a somewhat adventurous life, and to have that great wide sea before my eyes for ever. You, I dare say, have been going on quietly and peacefully all your days, perhaps in London or in some great town, "'knowing nothing of hardships or of dangers. "'So that is the reason you love quiet places.' "'Quite the reverse,' answered Osborne with a smile. "'Mine has been nothing but a life of peril and danger and activity "'as far as it hitherto has gone. "'From the time I was eighteen till now, "'the battle and the skirmish, the march and the retreat, "'with often the hard ground for my bed, "'as frequently the sky for my covering, "'and at best a thin piece of canvas to keep off the blast.' have been my lot, but it is that very fact that makes me long for some repose, and love scenes that give the picture of it to the imagination, if not the reality to the heart. I should suppose that few men who have passed their time thus, and known from youth to manhood nothing but strife and hourly peril, do not sooner or later desire such tranquillity. "'I don't know, sir,' said the smuggler. "'It may be so, and the time may come with me.' but yet I think habits one is bred to get such a hold of the heart that we can't do without them. I often fancy I should like a month's quiet, too, but then I know before the month was out I should long to be on the sea again. Man is a discontented creature, said Ward. Not even the bounty of God can satisfy him. I do not believe that he would even rest in heaven were he not wearied of change by the events of his life. "'Well may they say it is a state of trial.' "'I hope I shall go to heaven, too,' rejoined the smuggler. "'But I should like a few trips first, "'and I dare say when I grow an old man and stiff and rusty "'I shall be well contented to take my walk here in the sunshine "'and talk of days that are gone. "'But at present, when one has life and strength, "'I could no more sit and get cankered in idleness "'than I could turn miller.' This world's not a place to be still in, and I say, blow wind and push off the boat. But one may have activity enough without constant excitement and peril, answered Osborne. I don't know that there would be half the pleasure in it, replied the smuggler, laughing. That we strive for, that we love. Everything must have its price, and cheap got is little valued. But who is this coming? He continued, turning sharply round before either of his companions heard a sound. The next moment, however, steps running up the face of the bank were distinguished, and in another minute a boy of twelve or thirteen, dressed in a sailor's jacket, came hurrying up to the smuggler, 
and pulled his sleeve, saying in a low voice, "'Come hither, come hither, I want to speak to you.' The man took a step apart, and bending down his head, listened to something which the boy whispered in his ear. "'I will come, I will come directly,' he said at length, when the lad was done. "'Run on and tell them, little Starlight, for I must go home first for a minute. Good night, gentlemen.' he continued, turning to Mr. Ward and his companion. I must go away for a longer walk. And without farther adieu, he made to descend the bank, leaving the two friends to take their way back to Hythe, conversing as they went, much in the same strain as that in which they had indulged while coming thither, differing in almost every topic, and yet with some undefinable link of sympathy between them, which nevertheless owed its origin in the old man's breast, to very different feelings from those which were experienced by his younger companion. End of chapter 4